0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. We're going to read the first five verses, Micah chapter 4, 1 through 5. It says, The word of the Lord, it is eternally true, and it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples, and render decisions for mighty distant nations." Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up nation against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to this passage that you would help us to understand your word and in understanding it, that we would live it and that we would love your word. Father, help us to understand by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, when you read the prophets you'll go through passages that are bleak, they're dark, they are judgment, they are calling out the sins of the people. They are, um, thus saith the Lord, uh, passages where um, judgment from God is coming against his people. And then there are also passages where the, the light breaks through. And you see promises and uh, pictures of the future and uh, the, a picture of the redemption that God um, and, and his saving work that he does and will do. And this is one of those passages, this, this chapter in Micah is the sun breaking through after some very strong denunciation of the rulers of Israel. Right? We've just gone through three chapters where the rulers of Israel, the priests, and the prophets are all called out for um, for basically you know selling their position, selling uh, making money as much as they can by being a ruler of the people. And so you go back in chapter three and you look. Um, You look at 10, 11, 12, uh, back to, well, I'll go back to 8. On the other hand, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord and, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act. This is Micah speaking this. Even to Israel, his sin. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice Her leaders pronounce judgment for what? A bribe. Her priests instruct for what? A price. Right? And her prophets divine for what? Money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. And then verse twelve is the prophet's pronouncement that judgment is going to come. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. Right, Jerusalem will be desolated. And indeed, that is what happens. Uh, it is happening to Samaria. It is happening to the North Kingdom. And the Southern Kingdom is going to be uh, dispersed. And Jerusalem sacked and destroyed. And the temple destroyed as well. And so we know this comes to place. And yet, here we have this place prophecy in chapter 4 of the last days things that lie ahead now one thing you should know about this passage of micah 4 is it's exactly replicated in isaiah chapter 2 verses 2 through 4 same thing appears there who you know um, who wrote which one first did they borrow from one another um, I don't know, but could God prophesy the same thing through two prophets simultaneously? Of course he could. And so these words appear in Isaiah's prophecy. And of course, Isaiah and Micah are working around the same time in Israel. And so, uh, but notice 3.12 is this pronouncement of judgment. And then, and then this, this light breaks through. There's a change in the nature of the prophecy in chapter 4. Right, the merciful nature of God, even in the face of terrible sin, is demonstrated. The merciful nature of God, even in the face of sin, is demonstrated. Does that encourage you? Do you know your sinful heart intimately? Are you grateful that God is patient and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness towards you? As He is to as He was to Israel, even though He disciplined and punished them. Right, he did send his son to them, and uh, worked his his mercy. And so I think of Romans eleven twenty two: Behold the goodness and severity of God. Right, we see that in these passages laid next to one another, the goodness and severity of God. Now it says it'll come about in the last days. All right, so what days is he referring to? What days? is Micah the prophet, the Holy Spirit in this passage referring to? Well, it could be a number of things, right? It could be that this is just um, the last days of Jerusalem. And so he's just talking about a near-term prophecy, right? Just um, some historical events that are coming up soon that will be cataclysmic, and those will be the last days of Jerusalem. So it could be that um, it could be that the last days is pointing toward the New Testament church. The last days could be the New Testament church, right? Um, breaking off of Israel for the sake of the Gentiles, the days of the Messiah, right? That this is the, uh, the, the, what, what we understand uh, the New Testament scriptures, when it speaks of the last days, means basically anything between the resurrection and the end of time. right? And so these last days could correspond to the, the last days that we read of in the New Testament. And so it would be the church age. It would be that time period between the resurrection and the coming of Jesus. Or it could be um, further forward in the future, I think there are two other options that this could be. The last days could point toward the new heaven and new earth where Christ reigns after his return, right? When all the, when the earth is remade, when, um, when, the, uh, when um, Jesus is, is reigning. And so in a sense, uh, there would be much figurative language here. Or the last days could point toward a golden age preceding Christ's return. Okay? A golden age in the church where um, the, the earth turns to the Lord, right? And peace reigns, and then Jesus returns. And uh, this would be a more literal reading of this passage than the fi- figurative reading of the previous one. And so, but you look at the passage, and there are a lot of there are a lot of prophecies here. And when you try to figure out which one this applies to, there are troubles with all the various interpretations. Right? View number one: If we just take it as this is a, the last days is of you know a few hundred years in the future, and it's going to be when Jerusalem. Um, is, is sacked, there's, there's no real, real significance to this phrase last days if it's just a normal deliverance, right? If it's just some nation delivering another nation. Doesn't do justice to the rest of the passages, great peace that's laid out here, the nations being at peace with one another, the uh, swords being shaped into plowshares because there's no longer war, right? And so I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think it's that. I think the prophet. I think it could, it could be. It could stop off there, but I think the prophet, by God's grace, is looking forward past that. Now, so the the other views are all prophetic future, right? They're all um, pointing forward. View two, um, which would just point toward the time after Jesus' resurrection and before his return, would. Um, would read, you know, the swords being shaped into plowshares would essentially be a way of the prophet poetically saying that the effects of the gospel on reconciliation in the world uh, between peoples is going to uh, is going to flourish, right? Um, this is uh, what the apostle says in Ephesians about the Jews and the Gentiles being reconciled to one another in the blood of Christ, right? So it could, it could be that. Um, ultimately, though, this, this vision of these peaceful last days would be um, ultimately fulfilled in heaven in that view. Um, the third view, uh, that it's not the church age, but it's the new earth right? This would be a description of the glorious new earth. And, um, but what about verse 5? If this is the new earth, if this is after Jesus has returned, what about verse 5? Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God. It, it's like there's still a group of people who are still walking after their own God. And, um, and then it makes this distinction between those who follow the God's which are idols and those who walk in the name of the Lord. And then the fourth, okay, so both of those views um, have some troubles. Verse four, or view four, uh, this sort of post-millennial view, the post-millennial golden age, um, puts forward the increasing Christianization of the world until Christ is um, is center and the nations are converted. And so all of this would be taken as, um, as a, a sort of more literal interpretation of these verses. But again, what of verse 5? Right? It still seems that there is sinful mixed and, and a quantity of sinful along with God's people um, forever. Um, uh, post that that last view, many would say who hold that view that there will be a few unbelievers around even to the end. then Christ comes and set things, sets things completely in order. So if this is true, the only difference between uh, verse or views two, three, and four, and now stick with me here. I mean, I'm trying to make sense of this in my head, even as I say it. Views t- the only difference between views two, three, and four is, the order of the magnitude of the Christianizing of the world. That's the only difference between the mill and the post-mill views. And that verse, views two and three are really amillennial views, right? And so the only difference would be how, many, how much conversion there is. And, and then the order of, of Christ's return. Does he come whenever he would like? Or does he wait until the nations are predominantly Christianized? Right Now there's more to it than that though because the Amil is willing to, to see <laughs> the Amil view is willing to see in, these, in passages such as this and this I'll let you know is a very popular post-millennial passage. The post-mills grab onto this passage and it really is that, that um, what it says about the, the nations and what it says about war ceasing. Right, that, that's going to take, um, take conversion, right? But all millennials will tend to view things spiritually. Post millennials will tend to view things historically or physically, right? So they'll come to a passage like this and they'll say, "Well, this is going to be fulfilled very physically. It is about nations, and it is actually about swords, and it is about swords becoming plowshares, and it is about wars ceasing." Whereas the Amillennial will come to it and say, look, in Christ, these things have been fulfilled, right? In Christ, there is peace among the nations. In Christ, the, you know, God reigns over the nations. He is a king, he reigns now. And uh, though in his providence, he allows there to be um, an affliction of his people, right? These things are are happening and so uh, they would view these things in in interpreting them spiritually rather than physically or I I would put it they would view them figuratively rather than woodenly or literalistically okay Um, in the interpretation so the Amil view tends to the to uh, to view this spiritually uh, with faith, there's nothing to fear. Do not fear man, Matthew 10. There's nothing to fear. In Jesus Christ, there's peace, right? And so peace reigns through his church. And all the nations are coming into the church. And the church, this is the church age, and there is peace there, right? Post Mills will step outside the church and say this applies as much to culture as it does to the church. This is actually about nations, right? This is actually about nation-states, um, there will actually be no persecution. The state will be subdued or Christianized. Um, that there will, be, there will be changes in constitutions to make Christ the center of the Constitution, right? And that means there's no, nothing to fear. The nations are coming to um, Jesus Christ. And so all of that to say that your, your eschatological presuppositions Dictate how you interpret this passage, right? It is, and um, and the funny thing is, is you have to do you have to do the hard work of going into passages like this and trying to wrap your brain around them before you determine your eschatological view, right? Usually, we just we like our eschatology because some dude that we think is popular you know, holds it. And so we determine, we, and, and there's, you know, in some sense I'm not opposed to that because that's, that's how I become a paedo-baptist. I became a paedo-baptist because those I respected in the church were paedo-baptists. That's not a bad way to adopt something. It shows humility. It shows submission. But then you have to get around to the point where you actually study the issue and you have convictions and you don't do that until you actually have children. Right? when you have to make a decision about those things, but then you should do it based upon um, Scripture. When it comes to eschatology, I don't know if there's any impetus quite like having children. Um, you know, that would, be, that would push you to try to figure out your eschatology. I'm of the school where you should hold your eschatology loosely because not even Jesus knows the time of his return. Um So, I tend to read this passage as pointing toward the, the church age. The last days is the time between Christ's resurrection and return. It's now and into the future. It's not holy future, right? So um, verse one, Jesus will be lifted up. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will, be established as the chief of the mountains and it will be raised above the hills and the people will stream to it. I think if we're interpreting this figuratively, that is Jesus comes, he's raised up and the nations bow before Jesus figuratively, right? He was lifted and we we could go to John, Jesus says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Well, that's all nations, right? That's all kinds of men. And so when he's lifted up on the cross, he's drawing to himself the nations. That's why we evangelize. That's why we go out to the world. And what do we talk about? We talk about Jesus risen from the dead. We talk about him crucified. We talk about his resurrection. He is, as he's lifted up, drawing all men to himself. This is a way of saying uh, a church shall be set up in the world testifying to that resurrection to which the Lord will be daily adding such as Will be saved, right? And um, this is the this is activity on a hill that cannot be hidden. That's his church, right? Verse two, verse two. Many nations will come and say, "Come and let us go up to the mountain of the uh, of the Lord, the temple of the Lord." Right? Jesus' body being the temple, and to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Well, this is Matthew 28. This is Jesus saying, go out among all the nations, teaching them to to obey all that I've commanded, to baptize, right? Drawing the nations. And so the gospel goes out, and that's a picture of it. Verse 3, the Spirit... Um, And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Right? And so I say this is the spirit working with the word. That will reprove the nations, John 16, 8. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness in judgment. The gospel goes out and conquers. The gospel is, and the, the, the message of Jesus Christ is the only thing that subdues angry, hostile men. That's all there is that subdues. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel. Uh, Matthew Henry says they shall beat their swords into plowshares, that is, angry, passionate men that have been fierce and furious shall be wonderfully um, sweetened and made mild and meek, right? The gospel subdues the violent. It's done that to us, right? Where would we be if if God hadn't softened our hearts? Right? What would we be into? What violence would we be putting our hands to? The church and her sweet fellowship is evidence of the, the, the subduing work of the Holy Spirit. And it works in all nations and in all tongues and tribes and nations. Um, we could go to Titus 3, Ephesians 2. And this, I would say, is ultimately fulfilled in the new earth. Um, verse 4 Right? Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Is this a picture of the new earth? Um, a picture, of, or, or is it a picture of the peace that surpasses understanding in the converted? Right? No fear. Love casts out fear. There is no fear when we have Jesus in our hearts. Right, When we have Jesus as our king protecting us. And then verse 5, though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Here's a picture of the simultaneous uh, intermingling of the wicked and the righteous. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, we won't walk with them. We will walk with the Lord. We will walk with Yahweh. Right, this is um, uh, people walking in the name of their false gods, their idols, while the people of God, the church, walks in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. Uh, Jesus' message in Matthew 5, 10-11, uh, to 11, right, is a message, I think, and I... I, I My thoughts are having thoughts at this point, but stick with me. Um, Matthew 5, right, is about persecution. That is something that I believe will exist in all ages of the church. Matthew 5, um, that's that's not to say that the post-millennials don't believe that too. They do. They just think of it as mini-persecution. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Notice that blessing comes through persecution. And all those who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Right? So there's blessing and promises of persecution to the people of God. Um, I would say one strong critique of the post-millennial view of this passage, right? Um, a literalistic reading where all of this is filled, fulfilled in time and space and in state and church. They have a tendency to place all these prophecies in the realm of the political, right? And not in the realm or in the realm of statecraft. So nations are nations like the USA or Ethiopia, and the change of weapons to farm implements is couched in the subduing of political rivalries. Right? Those things may be right. Nations may be unambiguously Christian in the future. But let's not lose sight of the church. Let's not lose sight of the church in the midst of this world. The church as an ark in the midst of this world. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, right? The church is the Israel of God that that transcends the nations, which are just a drop in the bucket and are all temporary, right? The church is that which is lasting. In other words, post mills can be so caught up in the political that they lose sight of the fact that the mechanism of God's rule will always be his church, That's where Jesus is head. He is the head of the church. Right? And the gospel and the outpouring of his spirit will be what reigns. Again, we could reform our nation. We could change our constitution to speak of Christ's kingship. Rewrite all of our code based upon Moses' codes. And if the hearts of the people are not converted in the (laughs) church, and the church is devoid of the preaching of the gospel, the sacraments, and discipline, all of that would mean nothing. It would just be nothing. It would be a coup that led to warfare. It takes a converted man to participate in turning swords into farm implements. It takes a converted man Right? The church and her message is the only way for the message to, to uh, penetrate the hearts of men. Uh, teach them the word of God, and these changes will come with God's blessings. Right, Teach individuals the word of God. Draw them into Christ's church. Tell them to be fruitful and multiply, right? and fill the earth. And these changes will come with God's blessing. But the impetus to put down our our swords only comes when we understand that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Love to neighbor only arises out of a converted heart. Love to neighbor does not arise out of statecraft. It was never the purpose of statecraft. Right? It comes out of converted hearts. Love to neighbor is a calling of God's people in the church. Um, Revival, right? Revival in the church must lead. Then renewal in statecraft may follow. It may um, be a fruit of conversion. All those things could follow. But revival, right? People pouring into the church as God's spirit converts them is what we long to see. And I think this is a picture of that. This is Micah looking forward to that time uh, when by God's blessings, um, that, and that time is now. Right? Those, there are people coming into his church. We pray for a special blessing and revival. So some applications from this long winding road that I just went down, and I'm sorry if I lost any of you. Um, Sorry if I lost myself. One, regardless of how the timing works, good things have come and are coming. Okay, good things have come and are coming. Jesus reigns. He rose from the dead. He lives. And that has changed everything, right? Good things have come and are coming. God's kingdom is everlasting. You are a citizen of that kingdom. Right? That's your nationality before American. It is Christian. Right? You have that. You are a citizen of that kingdom. When nations have come and gone, Christ's kingdom will remain. Two, remember God's kindness. Remember God's kindness. We we at the prayer meeting read... um, Nehemiah chapter 9 and this is a prayer where the people are confessing their sins and the sins of the past and it's like sin and God was gracious sin and God was gracious sin and God still loved us sin and God was good remember that remember that right he is long suffering with repentant people and Remember the context of Micah chapter 4. It's right after Micah 3.12 where he says, I'm going to come and Jerusalem is going to be desolated. And then this promise, this promise of him redeeming, bringing peace, right? It's glorious. And that is the God that we serve. He is gracious. God is gracious. It is his character to be gracious. Third, peace will reign forever. Do not fret about the vainly raging nations. Peace will reign. God is not um, knocked off his throne. He, he occupies his throne now. He is king over all the nations. And the nations will vainly rage. The seeming chaos, the, hig- the higgledy-piggledy, that's a great higgledy-piggledy, um, nature of life now. Isn't that what life seems like, higgledy-piggledy? You guys don't know that phrase? Yeah, it's just sort of chaotic, up and down, like you just can't get a handle on it. It's, it's as good as willy-nilly, right? But higgledy-piggledy, nature of life. Now, peace, peace will come and has come in Jesus Christ. You can learn contentment even now, even as the nations vainly rage against, even as our nation goes down this critical theory post-postmodern you know wormhole. We can have peace. We have the peace that surpasses understanding in Christ Jesus. We have that peace. Um, There will be no one to make you afraid. Verse four: In Christ, our fears are done away with, or they begin to die. Right? We begin to put them to death. We begin to as we, as we grow in Jesus and learn to love Him, our fears get begin, at the very least, to be put down. Um, but we can have that peace. Um, fourth, Jesus reigns now. The nations are to Him like a speck of dust on the scales. Isaiah 40, verse 15. The bride is still the apple of His eye, but His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Right? And it reigns over all the nations. And... I want to. I want to share with you. I wondered whether I would do this or not, but now I'm convicted. I should. Calvin's sermon on this is great, like most of Calvin's sermons on most topics. But I, I wanted to, and they're so they're so simple that I can imagine modern theologians sort of hate Calvin's sermons because they're so simple that they think he's simple-minded. But they don't realize that he's preaching to a bunch of of people who don't have the education he has. And so he's preaching to his people, right, so that they might understand. But listen to what he says about this um, passage. Once again, however, we must realize that all... all these things that pertain to our Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom will never be fulfilled on earth because Christ's kingdom will not achieve its perfection in this world. Besides, inasmuch as it has just begun, it can only increase day by day. Hence, God's benefits and blessings become manifest only to the extent that Christ's kingdom grows. But its perfection will not occur until we have left this body of flesh and have departed from this world. Moreover, we must also note that since our Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom is spiritual, we ought not settle for a worldly peace based on our own appetites. For if we are too lax in the matter, it would seem to us that our paradise should be located here below. Thus, we would harbor a false vision concerning our Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom and think that our highest good ought consist in the vanities of this world. It is true that as St. Paul says, when we serve God with a pure and sound conscience, not only do the promises of the life to come belong to us, but also of the present life, that we may expect that God will nurture us and we will receive from his hand all of life's necessities and be assisted by his power in all our needs. That is how we receive help and succor in this present life from God's goodness and grace. But that is not the whole of it. One more paragraph. For we must remember who we are and that this present life is only a passage through which we run in our haste. For that reason, I have said that the benefits that our Lord Jesus Christ offers us are spiritual, but we would never grasp that unless God forced us to see it. Thus, we must realize that every single benefit that we receive from God functions as a means for drawing us to God, indeed, as a helpful nudge to push us toward God. That is why we must never settle for a worldly peace, such as Micah mentions here. For in reality, we know that we are often afraid of our enemies, that we are destitute of the world's goods, that we suffer greatly and are in debt and indigent. And why? Right? So he's saying, we're always suffering. Things are not always going so well, but it's a spiritual kingdom. So then he concludes, he says, and why is that? Why would God keep his church suffering? Because our Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom can never attain perfection in us. In addition, it is both good and essential that our Lord should visit us with diverse afflictions that we might always look to Him and long for that heavenly life which we have been promised. So, there's some spiritualization if I've ever read it, right? He's like, there's a purpose to the suffering that God brings, and that's that we might look to Him to depend upon Him And all these things will only be at once finally, finally smoothed out in the new heavens and new earth. Um, And don't forget that Calvin was a man who transformed the culture and it still has lasting value even today. His writing is still transforming culture. Right? So even though he had this view of the church and the spiritualization of passages like this, he transformed culture more than, than any of the muckety-mucks today are doing. Right? Now, last thing, last application. If the Spirit has worked in you, you can begin transforming your swords into plowshares even now. You can forgive your parents who you think sinned against you. Right? You can live a life free of resentment because you know Jesus and your name has been written in the book and you have been transferred out of darkness and into his light and so you, can, you, can, you don't need those implements of war anymore. You, you can, you can um, begin hammering that sword into a plowshare, remembering that God's anger towards you, which was justified, has been turned away. It has been turned away. Um, his mercy should obliterate your resentment. He has sent his Son to redeem you. All is well, right? Put away the weapons and comfort others with the comfort with which you have been comforted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you reign and the gates of hell will never prevail against your church. Thank you that our lives are hidden with you in Christ. And Father, that we can, we can uh, rest in peace even as the nations rage around us, but we know that there will come a time when all the nations will bring their glory into, into Jerusalem, into that, that new Jerusalem where Jesus the, the Lamb reigns, and where there is no need of the sun, because Jesus will be the light. Lord, we, we love you, we thank you that you have given us through our new birth a taste of the reign of peace that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.